The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. You say, why genealogies? I asked the question myself because I was trying to make sure that I had the right motives at first as we were going through this, not just to say, let's take an obscure text and point to Jesus through it. But how many know that the Bible doesn't really need our explanation? It just needs to be opened up and released and read and given attention to. And sometimes, how many in your Bible reading, sometimes you just don't pay attention? Are you with me? You just don't pay attention. How many in church, sometimes you don't pay attention? I know some of you, you're not paying attention because you're not even paying attention to what I'm asking you right now. So, you know, we have a problem sometimes with our attention But God doesn't have a problem with communication. Sometimes it's the receptivity that we have to what God is trying to communicate to us. And as we look at the scriptures, why genealogies? Well, first, there's a reason for this why genealogies. The first thing is that there was a Jewish tribal structure that's known and seen through genealogies. In other words, we don't look to genealogies the way they did, but to them, Jewish tribal structure was important where they came from meant what they could do. You could only be a priest if you could prove that you came from a certain tribe. You could only be a part of or live in a certain territory of a land on the fact that you were part of a certain tribe. So it drew lines for them. It gave them a realm to live in, uh, to work in. It was what their whole life was about. So genealogies were important to the Jews. And if I can remind you that Matthew is writing in his gospel to a Jewish audience... And so he's laying out for us the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's important. There's a tribal structure that they would have understood. There's the second point, which is a big point, is that Messiah would come through David's line. And so there needed to be a line that could be traced. When Messiah would come, they would have to trace a line from David to the Messiah in order to prove that he was the Messiah. Now, they're doing that today. They're trying to point to certain individuals and they're tracing lines. Uh, how many have seen recently this becoming more popular, even in our culture, tracing your genealogies? You see all these little tests, little swabs. You can go to Walmart, you buy a swab, and you can send it away, and you can get your genealogy. We do it. We think it's cool. But for them, it was important because to them, your genealogy was your resume. Your genealogy was who you were. It was how you presented yourself. When you introduced yourself, you were the son of. You were after who? You were ancestor to. There was an importance to that connection. And you could even see in Luke chapter 2, when Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem, they had had to be of what? They were part of the house and lineage of David. The Bible points to that. And Matthew is drawing this line to Jesus about the fact that he has the right tribal structure. He's of the tribe of Judah. He has the right uh, line from David to be the Messiah And his resume is perfect. And so he's presenting that as Jesus being the Messiah. The second reason why genealogies is that Matthew's genealogy here is not just a genealogy, it's a theology. And you look at Matthew's genealogy, if you look at verses 2 through 6, it's God's mercy. It's God's mercy. If you can see these individuals that God is talking about in the first uh, six verses... God is showing his mercy through this genealogy. 
If you look at verses 7 through 11, what happens? Well, David becomes king. He's the end of, if you would, that first, the beginning of the next uh, group. You see it in groups of 14, right? 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Why is that important? Well, seven, the number of God, number of completion. We see these groups of seven, Jesus being perfect, complete. Uh, We see how these all come together, but that's how he's mentioning them. When we get to David, it's like David is the best of the Jews, right? He's the 14th man, if you would. He's the best of the Jews. He's the fulfillment of. And then from David, what happens? Everything gets bad after David, doesn't it? David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Solomon comes. He marries other wives. And from there, look at the kings. They go down, 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 down. And they mention these kings. And if you go back and read about these kings, some of them would have been familiar to you, like Jehoiakim and others as we read through. And you'd say, man, God's judgment on a people who didn't follow him. But then we see God's faithfulness in verses 12 through 16 because how many got to verse number 12 and you're like, I don't even know who these guys are anymore. And by the way, nobody does. There's not much that we read in scriptures about them and there's nothing that we can read in history about them. As a matter of fact, they're so obscure that we know very little about these names that are mentioned in the genealogies. It's like a time where nobody was mentioned or known or understood and yet they're mentioned here in this genealogy to show that even though man may not have been faithful and may have been worthy of God's judgment, God was faithful to his line. God was faithful to his promises. And how many glad that when you can't see God at work, God is at work, and when man isn't faithful, God is. How many take hope in that today? I'm thankful that God is faithful. And so Matthew's genealogy is not just a genealogy, it's a theology. And through it, we see God's mercy, we see God's judgment, we see God's faithfulness. Stay with me. But I want to talk to you, I want to give you uh, seven points because it's going to be the perfect message, all right, for Christmas, all right? And so seven points quickly. Some of you just say, oh, my Lord. All right, seven, all right. We can have the assurance of hope, okay? We can have the assurance of hope. We're talking about a thrill of hope. We can have the assurance of hope. And the reason why we can have the assurance of hope, and I want to give you those points from our text today. Why we can have the assurance of hope. Christmas time is not always an easy time for everybody. Some of you here, listen, I'm thankful that you're here, but I know that Christmas doesn't necessarily represent a thrilling time. For some people, Christmas is difficult. For some people, Christmas is lonely. For some people, Christmas is not good memories, it's bad memories. Are you with me, church? lest we forget. Listen, we're all here together to consider all of each other in what positions that we're in. And listen, we're all rejoicing with those that rejoice, but we're weeping with those that weep. And I'm telling you, uh, all of us need real hope today. We need real hope today. Not hope in what we're going to unwrap. Are you with me? Not hope in what we have bought and given. Not hope in material possessions. Hope in a living, eternal Savior. And the assurance that we can have of that hope is clear in the Scriptures. Number one, let me give you these points. We can have the assurance of hope because, number one, the story is true. The story is true. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, the book of the generation, a record, a book. That's what he's talking about, a book. This is a record. This is a record. He's not saying this is a story that might have happened. He's saying this is the record of something that did happen. He's pointing like a historian to a point in time where something took place. And by the way, that's so important because if you just believe that Jesus is part of all of the other holiday traditions that are fantasies, 
that we created to bring maybe a false hope or some kind of hope to ourselves. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not against that kind of hope, but I, I just know that it doesn't last. Are you with me? I'm not against having happiness and fun and joy and all those kinds of things. I'm not against child's imagination and all those things. And I think some people are just mean when it comes to some of that stuff. I'm not against that stuff. But I'm telling you, Christmas is about something much deeper than our traditions. Christmas, Jesus Christ coming into the world, which is why we're celebrating Christmas as Christians. Because, listen, we're not just part of the culture. We're informed, aren't we? Aren't we informed? We know what the Bible teaches. We understand what the Bible says. We can't ignore it. We have to celebrate it. We have to also make it known and we have, to, we have to leverage what's happening in our culture to point people to the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, we have to have confidence about what we're going and telling. Do you believe that this record is true? Do you believe that it's true? That's important because if you don't believe, if you believe the Bible is just a good book that you can get some examples from and some wisdom from, it's like a, you know, a nice parabolic writing and you, know, you can take it or leave it as it is. Not all of it's true, some of it's true, maybe some of the thoughts and intentions. And you're kind of thinking about the Bible in that term. You're not going to have much assurance. You're not going to have much assurance. Because what the Bible says is declarative. It's not like the Bible saying this might have happened. It's saying this is a record. It's declaring history to us, and this story is true. Matthew's saying here, this is a record. And by the way, it's good news. It's good news. It's not advice. It's good news, not advice. Sometimes people look at the Bible as good advice. The Bible's not good advice about what you need to do to have a better life. The Bible is good news about what Jesus did to bring you life. Are you with me today? It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not good advice about what you need to do. Some people, they come to the Bible and they say, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? Because they only look at the Bible as a list of things to do and don't do. The Bible is not a record about things you need to do or good advice about what you need to do. The Bible is good news about what Jesus has done for you, what you couldn't do for yourself, what was impossible for you to achieve, what was impossible for you to do. It's good news, not just good advice. And because of that, all of reality has become fact. All of reality has become fact. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, how many know that people want hope? But when you watch something that's not true, how many, when you watch, uh, you know, I don't know what, whatever it is that you watch. I don't want to offend you by naming whatever I watched. Or But I was, I was watching the, all right, I'll tell you. I was watching The Karate Kid last night. It was a Christmas classic, all right? My kids had never been turned on to that, and they were amazed at the quality of the 1980s, all right? But through this story, you know, you know, this week, I'm looking at me, boy, he's like weaker and more anemic than I have ever seen a human being be. But here he is, he rises to the top and, you know, he's the best, right? He wins at the end. If only we all could learn that move that, you know, nobody can block, right? And, uh, you know, he has, you know, these qualities about him that seem to be impossible. But through, the, through this story, you come to the end and, you know, he wins and you get excited about that. And it gives you kind of a thrill, Right. But then you walk away from that and you go, yeah, but that doesn't happen in real life. How many, how many are with me on that? Or you go, yeah, that, he would have got, got pummeled. You know, that, was, that wouldn't have actually happened. You know, I could have blocked that kick. Are you with me? All right, I, I'm not into martial art, but I could have blocked that, that kick. It seemed like he just kind of walked into it, right? So I, I could have blocked. And we look at things like that and we, in our culture, 
and these fantasy stories of Cinderella, and she lives happily ever after, and she gets Prince Charming, and, you know, be kind, and kindness will come back to you. How many know that's what we want, but that's not necessarily the reality we live in? Are you with me? It's what we want. Do we want the good guy to win? Yes, sometimes. It's a weird world that we live in where the good guy is kind of bad now, you know, too. And so we have this this reality that we live in where we want good to triumph, where we want evil to be defeated, where we want something to happen that's good around us, but we constantly see negativity. We constantly see things that happen, and we see failures all around us, and we go, how in the world, how in the world is hope going to come? I mean, how in the world? Because we want things to happen, but we see you know, the things that we desire just don't take place. Good doesn't triumph over evil. But the story is true, which tells us, listen, all the inward desires that God naturally gave us, they're true, and they are going to happen through Jesus. Can I just help you today? Good is going to triumph over evil. The good guy is going to win. We are going to, are you with me? We are going to live happily ever after. There is goodness that's going to come. Peace is going to come. Victory is going to come. But it's going to happen through Jesus Christ. And all those hopes that God has put in you are real. And God wants you to have those things. And God is going to show you how they're going to come to pass in life. They just aren't going to all happen here. Are you with me? They're not all going to happen in this life. If in this life we have hope only, the Bible says we're men most miserable, but we have hope in the life to come because our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because the story is true, all of realities become fact. Number two, we can have the assurance of hope because we can trust the Scripture. We can trust the Scripture. Uh, As you look at this, this genealogy, it's fulfilled prophecy. Is that coincidence or is that faked? Is that coincidence or is that faked? Because I think you have to come to this and you have to say it's one of the two, right? You have to say, okay, this is a coincidence or I think there's a third option that we know. It's true, right? It's neither coincidence or fake because we have a detailed genealogy that's here that can be traced through history. So why is God putting something here for us? As we look at this detailed genealogy, what's he saying to us? Hey, listen, you can trust the scriptures. The scriptures build on themselves. They don't contradict themselves. As God prophesied what would take place, here it is in real time taking place. Let me show you the history. Let me point you to the timeline. Let me bring you through this detailed genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a coincidence This is not faked. By the way, that's what people proudly presented as we looked at last week, the resurrection. That was faked or that it was just coincidence that some of these things took place, but that it couldn't be real. Listen, this morning, church, you can trust in the scriptures. You can trust in them. We we put a lot of trust in what men write, don't we? We read news articles and don't question them sometimes. We read... We read uh, books, philosophy, we read historians, and we just accept them. And then we get to the Bible, and we become these uber-skeptics. You know, it's amazing to me what people actually believe. They, They believe their news feed on Facebook, but they don't believe the Bible when they read it. And I find that laughable because we're not talking about something that's changing with the culture and time. We're talking about something that is frozen in time, that is timeless. We're talking about something that's not changing, Even though people have, I mean, have people tried to change this in history? Have they tried to eradicate it in history? Have they tried to burn it? 
have they tried to bust it open? Have, by the way, I mean, the greatest philosophers, one of them said in 100 years, the Bible's not going to be read anymore. And guess what they did? They bought his house, and it was the place where the Bible was published for hundreds of years after that. Interesting that when man speaks out against God's word, God's word speaks back to him and says, you're wrong. And you can trust in the scriptures. In the scriptures, we have hope. In the scriptures, we can come to and say, I believe this. I can have confidences in this. I can know this. Jesus is the Messiah. And here's this detailed genealogy. Number three, we can have the assurance of hope because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. In Genesis chapter 3, God made a big promise, didn't he? We had a big problem followed up by a big promise, okay? There was a big problem, man sinned, man failed. How many know that's a big problem? How many still cause problems when you sin? How many know it causes problems in your life, causes problems in your relationship? It caused problems in the world. The Bible says in Romans, wherefore is by one man sin entered in the world and death by sin. That first man was Adam. In Adam, all sin. But the Bible says in Christ, all can be made alive. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, God said this, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. I'm going to put between enmity between your seed and her seed. He's going to, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. That's a promise that God made to who? Satan, to Lucifer. He said, hey, listen, what you've done, you feel like you've accomplished something great here. You've you've, uh, tempted with evil and brought mankind and thrust them into sinfulness But isn't it wonderful that God had a plan before the foundations of the world? That God had a plan before creation? And that God's plan is more beautiful because of man's failure, not less beautiful. Man has messed up everything God said that was good and wonderful, but God continues to be good and wonderful and perfect. And we see that through all of history and through all of time, And he gives this promise, I'm going to send someone who is going to crush the head of Satan. And that is a promise he makes in the very beginning in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. And then he makes a promise to who? I mean, remember Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 22. He says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So he tells Abraham... You've had faith in me. Your faith's been counted to you for righteousness. You've trusted in me. You believed in me. You trusted that I had a plan. You saw man's and what they're doing and the way they're following, but you chose. You're following me. You've trusted in me. You put faith in me. Hey, listen, I promise you, Abraham, that hope is coming, and that hope is going to come through your seed. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1. The book of the generation or the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of who? You know what God's saying? Hey, I keep my promises. I promised Abraham. Maybe it's been a long time. Maybe you thought I forgot. Maybe when you look at this genealogy, you're a little confused at the directions it's taken. But you can be sure that Jesus has come and he's from the seed of Abraham Because I promised Abraham way back there that a Messiah was going to come through his seed and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And what God's saying, I keep my promises. 
You know what? He says that to us too this morning. I keep my promises. I don't know for you. Maybe you looked at a promise of God and believed it sometime in your Christianity or in your walk with God, but maybe today where you're at because it got dark and it got difficult and man's failed you and the church has failed you and people around you have failed you and you have all this failure that's all around you and you have all this difficulty that's around you. You can come back to God's word and God says, hey, listen, you can have assurance of hope because I Keep my promise. Look at Matthew 1.1. He's from the seed of Abraham. Just like I said. Just like I said. You know what? Abraham rejoices. God kept his promise. How long did it take? Listen, it doesn't matter how long it takes. God always keeps his promise. You can trust in that with all of your life. God keeps his promises. And then he makes another promise, doesn't he? To David. He promises David. In Isaiah chapter 9, go back to Isaiah chapter 9. You probably know this is where we quote from often. And look at chapter 9, verse number 6. You got your Bible? Turn there. Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6. For unto us a what? A child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called what? Wonderful. Read it with me. Counselor. The mighty God, some of you still turning there, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will, will perform this. Isaiah prophesied concerning the promise that David received from the Lord in his kingdom. And Isaiah prophesies about it here. He says, the Lord will perform it. He will do it. He will do just like he said. You can count on it. This is centuries before. Centuries before. This is written centuries before Matthew's gospel. Matthew gets up and he begins his gospel, of course, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And you see what he says? Hey, listen. He's the son of Abraham, but he's the son of David too. How can God keep his promise to both of them? Isn't that interesting? God made a promise to Abraham and he made a promise to David, but just because he made a promise to one and made a promise to the other didn't hinder him from keeping his promise to either one. Aren't you glad that God can make a promise to you and God can make a promise to me and God can keep and fulfill all his promises to all of us? I'm not like that. You with me? I'm not like that. How many are not like that, like me? How many promises can you make? How many promises can you keep? Sometimes our problem in life is we make too many promises. How many make promises sometimes and you know you can't keep them? You get that phone call, you know, on this day, I'll pay this bill. You know, I promise. Ah, I didn't really mean that. You know, that's, people understand, you know, we don't keep, we live in a, a world where people don't keep their word. Are you with me? So it's easy for us to come to God and think that God doesn't also keep his word. You know, sometimes one of the greatest things lies that pastors hear is, Pastor, I'll see you on Sunday. <laughs> I don't even know sometimes. I wonder, yeah, okay, we'll see. Yeah, I know where I'll be. You know, so, you know, sometimes, you know, that's one of the greatest. Come on, you can laugh a little bit. Some of you are like, well, that hurt, Pastor. I know you're talking about me, all right? It's one of the greatest lies that people tell. You know, I'll see you on Sunday. Well, we'll see, you know. Because people don't always mean what they say. Sometimes we just say things. Are you with me? Can I help you? God always means what he says. 
And he always says what he means. And he always does what he says. He always does what he says. God keeps his promises. His promise to one doesn't negate his promise to another. He can make promises to all and keep promises to all. That's our God. Hey, you know, the wonderful thing today is God promised that those that are in Christ, he's going to keep. Those that are in Christ, he's not going to lose. How many, if you had to keep all that God keeps, you'd lose a lot of them? But God, he can keep them all. And if one of them goes astray, he still goes after them, and he pursues them, and he doesn't lose any of his. God won't lose any of his children. He won't lose one of them. I don't know about you, but when you feel a little lost, I'm thankful for God's promise. When I feel a little lost, I'm thankful for God's promise that he doesn't lose his children. God keeps his promises. Number four, you still with me? In the genealogies here, we can have the assurance of hope because God's grace always wins. Because God's grace always wins. Do you see this? I want you to look at it with me. Purposefully, Matthew does something that Jewish genealogies don't do. One, he mentions women. Jewish genealogies don't mention women. It's the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. Not only do Jewish genealogies don't mention women because they're unimportant to the genealogy. Are you with me? But they don't mention the kind of women with sordid backgrounds that Matthew's gospel mentions. These are not women with great backgrounds. Tamar. That's probably rated R, and I can't even tell you what Tamar's background is today because we have kids in the service. Are you with me? Read the Old Testament. Tamar was tainted. But Tamar's in the line. Are you with me? That doesn't make any sense. And if she was in the line, how many would just, he? come on, did he leave a lot of people out? He mentioned generationally, but he doesn't mention every person in the generation. So he purposely, and also he changes the spelling in ways that he talks about these people's names, but he purposely brings forward these, these women. Tamar. Rahab? Who is she? How do you know her? Rahab the, the what? Why mention her in the genealogy of Jesus? To Jews, who are the Jewish audience? Listen, you get there and you're like, I'm not so sure. <laughs> you know, maybe we can, you know, if, if it was PR for Jesus, that PR agent would say, let's, you know, let's put that one to the side. Let's put something else more, you know, forward. But God says, no, no. I'm good with naming this person. Because the genealogy is not about the people. It's about my grace. And my grace always wins. And if you think that all these people are perfect, let me present to you some sordid people. Here's Tamar. Here's Rahab. Ruth? Ruth was a Moabitess. Ruth wasn't supposed to be marrying, or her husband wasn't supposed to be marrying, or she wasn't supposed to be involved with. But yet Ruth, Bathsheba, it doesn't mention her name here, but what does it call her? The wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah. God brings her forward, doesn't he? He doesn't name the name here, but he points to her, doesn't he? You know what's also interesting about these four women? They're all Gentiles. They're all Gentiles. In a Jewish line, why bring Gentiles in? Because we're talking about a Savior who is the one that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through. And the Gentiles too. 
And God's grace doesn't just extend to the Jews. It extends to the Gentiles. Even in the Old Testament. Are you with me? Even in the Old Testament, God's grace abounds. Not just to the Jews, to the line of Abraham. But here, these that have been grafted in, these that have been married in, these that have been bought in, redeemed. Think about Ruth. Redeemed into the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing to have her name written here this way in the line of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You know what God is declaring in Matthew 1 in the genealogies before we get into the gospel? God's grace wins. It wins. It always wins. It doesn't matter the person. It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter how sordid it is. God's grace abounds and it always wins. The outcasts, maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel a little bit like in this world, like an outcast. Can I tell you, God's grace wins for the outcasts, for the ones with the backgrounds that don't match up, for the ones that don't line up. God's grace wins. Not only that, but the sinners. He gets to David. Man, the completion of, the best of the Jews. And how does he mention David? Not only for the outcasts, but the sinners. David. Put that slide up for me. David, the next one. David, the sinner. By the wife of who? Uriah. He doesn't say David, the father of. He says Bathsheba is the mother of. The wife of Uriah, his wife. What's he mentioning here? David messed up, but God didn't. David messed up, but God's plan moved forward. God's plan pushed forward. What's he saying? Hey, even the best of the Jews are sinners. Even the best of the Jews are sinners. I love how the angel appears to Mary and tells Mary that she's going to have Jesus. He says, you're highly favored. Blessed are thou among women and of thy seed, Jesus Christ. And what does she do? Who are you talking to? She doesn't go, oh, yes. I'm highly favored. Who are you talking to? I'm not highly favored. I'm an outcast. I'm not highly favored. I'm a sinner. I'm not, ble- I'm not blessed among, I'm a sinner. Mary needs to be redeemed like every other person in time needs to be redeemed. And Mary knew it the moment the angel announced this, why she had trouble with it. How in the world can I be the one that carries You know, Jesus is for the sinners. God's grace wins through the outcasts and through the sinners. David here by the wife of Uriah. And then God's grace always wins, verses 13 through 16, through the nobodies. Remember when we were reading that? Nobody knows who these guys are. They're not mentioned. You can't go back. You you go, Go ahead. I challenge you. Do the research. Bring it back to me. The commentary is just, we don't know. The nobodies. These are people that God purposely puts forward and says, hey, listen, my grace wins even when there's not people of renown named. That's why it's not many wise, not many noble in the kingdom of God. If you think yourself wise and noble, that's a hurdle to your relationship with God. He says, not many wise, not many noble. These nobodies in the text, God's grace wins. We can have assurance. Number, God's grace, notice what it does for us. It changes our status. It changes our status. Number five, we can have the assurance of hope because our hope 
is in the person of Jesus. He is both God and man. Luke goes right at it in his gospel. In Luke 3, 38, he says, the son of Adam, the son of God. Matthew doesn't necessarily go straight at it. He says, Mary, of whom Jesus was born. What's he doing? Well, he's both God and man. But he talks about Mary and says, of whom Jesus was born. Mentions Joseph, but notice verse number 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Anybody see something missing that's in the rest of the genealogies in the pairs? There's a missing father. There's a missing father. In Matthew's gospel, there's a missing father. He begins the genealogy, he says, Joseph's the husband of Mary, but Mary's the mother of Jesus. He doesn't say Joseph's the, Joseph and Mary, the parents of Jesus. He doesn't say Joseph, do you get it? Joseph begat, because if it followed in the line, just like it was father begat son, right? Father begat son, father begat son. Then you get to Jesus, it's mother begat son. There's a missing father. By the way, didn't the Jews accuse him of that? We be not born of fornication like you. Uh, we're, we're not illegitimate like you. We're not fatherless like you. Even the people that lived in Jesus' day knew that Jesus was, a quote-unquote, illegitimate. That Mary had conceived and was pregnant before she was married. And it was questionable who the father was. We're not going to get into it, but if you go three chapters into Matthew's gospel, Jesus is at the side of the Jordan. John is preaching. John is the preparer of the way for Jesus, right? He, he points to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He comes, Jesus says, you're going to baptize me. Jesus is baptized, and what do we get? A voice from heaven. What does the voice say? This is my Beloved son, my son, my son. The missing father filled in the gaps. Where's the father? The father calls down from heaven, lest anyone be confused about who the father is. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. No missing father, God the father. He is God and man. You say, why is that so important? Why is the virgin birth so important? Why is that doctrine so important? Because Jesus can't be the Messiah if he's not both God and man. He can't be the Messiah. He can't, by the way, he can't die for our sins unless he's both God and man. He's both God and man. If he's a man, he can be our substitute. But if he's God, he can be our infinite and perfect substitute. Did you get that? If he's a man, listen, I don't know, could he substitute? If he, let's say this, he lives a perfect life, which is impossible. Are you with me? But as a man, he lives a perfect life. Who can he die for? Well, probably just one other person, right? Because his life only goes one life, one life. But if he's God, he's infinite, he's eternal. If he's God, he can be an infinite, perfect substitute. He's, he's perfect because he's God. That's why he's perfect. The only person that could live sinlessly was Jesus because Jesus was the only God-man that has ever lived and will ever live. That's it. There's no other person that can claim sinless, imper- sinless perfection but Jesus Christ. 
And he's a man. He can be our substitute. If he's God, he can be our... Why? Why a man? Because a man had to die. I mean, the Hebrews clearly tells us it can't be by the blood of bulls and rams and goats because animals' blood can't pay for man's sin. How many know that the Old Testament does a good job presenting that to us? Animal blood can't pay for man's sin. But Jesus was one time for all. The Bible says complete, fully. He enters in. He, he dies. His blood is shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. All of these Old Testament sacrifices... All these Old Testament sacrifices, what are they pointing to? The Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ, whose blood's going to be shed. He's the perfect substitute for our sin. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. And then number six, our hope is in the finished work of Jesus. Our hope is in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus' incarnation, his death and resurrection complete the covenant work of God. Jesus' incarnation, that's... God becoming flesh, Jesus coming to the earth. His death and his resurrection completed the covenant work of God. Go back to uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Son of Abraham, son of David. What's he saying? A savior for all nations and a king for all nations. A savior for all nations, but a king for all nations. How can a king rule eternally if he's dead? Jesus comes and he dies. For God so loved the what? World that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hey, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He's the son of Abraham, so he's a savior for all nations, but he's the son of David because he's a king for all nations. How many know that he's coming back? King of kings, Lord of lords, How many are thankful that when he completed the work on the cross, he ascended and he sat down on what? The throne. Why did he sit on the throne? Because he's a king. He sat on the throne because he's in control. He sat on the throne because he resumed his right position as king. Can I help you today? He's on the throne right now. He's ruling and reigning. We're praying, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Why? On earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because his kingdom is coming. His kingdom is coming. And we're a part of that kingdom. And he is king. Ruler. Let me ask you a question today. Is he the Lord of your life? He's the Lord of heaven. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of all. But he's the Lord of all of your life. Listen, if he's not Lord in your life, then he's not Savior of your life. Because he cannot be Savior unless he's King. He has to be King. Both Savior and King. Both God and man. When he entered a relationship with you, he became your Savior, but he also became your Lord. Show me one person in the Scriptures who don't call him at salvation Lord. Remember Thomas? He didn't believe, but when he believed, what did he say? My Lord And my God, Lord, Lord, why? Savior and Lord, controller of my life. Listen, you can't claim him as Savior and not live for him as Lord. When he becomes a Savior, he becomes the one you live for, the one that's in control of your life. Let me ask you this question, lest that scares you. Are you really in control of your life anyway? Who would you rather be in control, you or him? How many have found that control is an illusion? 
How many are control freaks? The ones that are not acknowledging are the worst ones. You like to control everything and every, everyone and keep everything under control. And then God reminds you through life that you're not in control. And by the way, can I tell you, he's good to do that because you're not really in control anyway. It's an illusion. It's something you've believed that's not true. And you're not in control. But what does he say? Give me control. Isn't he good to ask us? Give me control. He could just take control, but he wants control from our lives. He says, I love you. This is what I've done for you. Now make me Lord of your life. Believe on me as Savior, but believe on me as Lord, King. He's the center of all history. He is the number 14. He is the complete. As we get to the end, he is the complete. He is the one that fulfills all. He's the man that the second Adam from above, but the complete, what Adam and Adam all died, Christ is made alive. He is the antithesis of, he's the anti of what Satan is. Satan is the antichrist. He is the Christ. Hey, listen, he's the opposite of all of man's imperfections. He is complete and perfect as a man, the center of all history in the numbers here. He is the center. The Bible says in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, into the world. He's the fulfiller of all scripture. I got to hurry up, but I want you to see this with me. Look at verse 1. The word generation, I told you, meant Genesis. If you go down a little bit further, you'll see the name Asa. You'll see the name Amos. Verse number 7, Asa. You'll see Amos. But as you go through this, you know what that tells us? You know what the Jews, as Jesus quotes Scripture, everything is written about me. In Luke 24, he says, in the law of Moses, Genesis, in the prophets, Asaph, in the Psalms, I'm sorry, in the Psalms, Asaph, in the prophets, Amos. What's he telling us as he goes through this? I am the fulfiller of all of Scripture. In the beginning, Genesis. In the Psalms, Asaph. In the prophets, Amos. He's pointing to the entirety of Scripture in the genealogy. And as he speaks to it later, lest you think I'm, I'm stretching, lest you think I'm reaching with this, that's what Jesus says to them. And by the way, that was the complete Bible to them. It was the law. It was the Psalms. It was the prophets. As I was talking to those Jews this week, they talked to me about the Torah, and they talked to me about the Tanakh. The Torah is the first five books, the Tanakhs, the Psalms, the prophets. The, and then they talked about the Talmud, which is the way that they interpret the Bible. Why? Because they needed these sages to write a commentary on the Bible to tell them what the Bible says. And now the Talmud is over the Torah and the Tanakh, and they read the Torah and the Tanakh through the Talmud. And I asked them a question. I said, here's the problem. What if you over-allegorize Scripture and you miss the point for which it was written? What if someone else over-allegorizes it? Is the Bible that hard to just read on its own and believe? They said, oh, we can't understand the Bible. We can't just read the Bible. We have to take what other people say about the Bible. Can I tell you this morning, you can just read the Bible. You don't need to take what other people say. You know what happened in the Dark Ages? When a bunch of people took the Bible away from the people, the religionists, 
the controllers, the dictators, the kings, took the Bible away from the people, and they didn't have the Bible in their own language, and then they needed these sages to tell them what the Bible said. Let me tell you, you can read the Bible. The Bible speaks for itself. The Bible speaks for itself. You can read the Bible line upon line, precept upon precept. Yes, God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. Yes, God uses shepherds in his church to expound on the word of God. He commands them to preach the word of God. But aren't you glad that you have the Holy Spirit of God that can teach you, uh, that can show you, that can tell you the truth of the word of God? That God's word is true and our hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not in me, it's not in you, it's not in our church, it's not in our organization. It's in Jesus, our hope is in Christ. And it's in our, listen, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit of God as believers that leads us and guides us into all truth. You say, what about people that they get to the Bible and they read things that aren't there? Listen, I understand that happens, but the Bible has a hinge for that too. Not for private interpretation. It doesn't contradict itself. Compare spiritual things with spiritual. Are there some hard things? Sure. But let me, let me just say this. Stay at it. Stay in the Word of God. Don't quit. How many God is teaching you? I hope He's teaching you. As you get in the Word of God, He keeps teaching you. How many He's correcting you? He's correcting you. Some people, they seem to be uncorrectable. The Word of God is... Profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. If you go to the Bible and say, I know all of it. No, no, the Bible, correct me, instruct me, teach me. When we get to the Bible, the Bible is profitable for these things, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. Our hope is in the finished work of Jesus. He's a fulfiller of all scripture. He is the new creation, the book of the Genesis of Jesus. I love that. The book of the generation, the book of the Genesis of Jesus the new creation. Hey, there was the old creation. Here's the new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. How many know that Jesus brought about a new generation? It's called the church. A new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the new creation. The Bible says in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Our hope is in the finished work of Jesus. He's the unifier of all humanity. As we look at this, we see male and female, Jew and Gentile. Male and female, Jew and Gentile. Why? Because God's trying to tell us, hey, side by side, you see men and women. You see Jews and Gentiles, even as genealogy. Why? Galatians 3.18 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the great unifier. He destroys all these constructs in society that oppress and keep people down. And Jesus comes and he unifies all humanity. You're one in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, we're done. Number seven, our hope is in our union with Christ. Our hope is in our union with Christ. Look at verse number 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14. From the carrying away into Babylon to Christ are 14. Now, if you're like me, any Bible nerds here? Any Bible nerds? If you're like me, I like to count when it says there's 14 generations. Don't do it now, but you can go back. There are only, after Babylon, unto Jesus, there are only 13 mentioned. There's 14 mentioned in the beginning. You get to David. There's 14 mentioned after David. You get to after, after that, and there's 13 mentioned to Jesus. 
So there seems to be a missing generation. What, what in the world? What, what's he talking about? What, what is this missing generation? Why would he say there's 14 and only mention there's 13? Well, the reason is, is that Jesus is the firstborn of many that will come after him. We are the missing generation. The church is the generation that follows Jesus. Listen, throughout the Da Vinci Code, Jesus did not have a physical offspring. Are you with me? He didn't have physical offspring. That's a myth, a lie, it's been debunked. It's, it's mystery, okay? It's, 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 it's really heresy. It, it, it has no truth or no weight. Jesus did not have human offspring. But we do know that he has spiritual offspring. And this new generation, this new creation, this spiritual offspring that God is talking about is this new generation. Hebrews 2.11, Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father, the Bible says, and that's why he's not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters because we have the same father. We're from the same Father, we are from him. We come from him. The Bible says we have come to share in Christ, Hebrews 3.14. The joy in our hope is in our union with Jesus Christ. How many thankful today that because of what Jesus has done, we are one in him. We're one in him. And because of that, we can, as we read in Hebrews 6.11, we can show that same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Why? Because what we believe is true. What we believe is not just a story. What we believe is true. What we know is true. We can trust the scriptures. God keeps his promises. But can I just share with you, you can keep reading and you'll find the same things true over and over again. Aren't you glad they're even in the genealogies? They're even in the places where sometimes we don't look. God didn't waste any pen. He didn't waste any paper. He didn't waste any words. He pointed this to us so that we might know him, know who he was, know how he lived, so that we could know him personally. I wonder, do you know him today personally? Not just religiously, not just historically, but personally. Is he your God? Is he your Savior? If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.